professor at Olin College, and I study asteroids. I have a pretty cool job, and one of my favorite parts is getting to meet all the interesting people who spend their days exploring space. Each week, I'll introduce you to one of these smart folks and ask them to tell us about their corner of the cosmos. Today's guest is Dr. Richard Cartwright, who is a research scientist at the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California. We are recording on February 23rd, 2023, and I am drinking. I was saying before the show, this is something that's been in my fridge forever. It is called a culture pop soda. It's soda with probiotics, strawberry and rhubarb flavor, and it's manufactured in Sudbury, Massachusetts. So it's local to me. What are you going to be drinking? Good morning, Carrie. I'm drinking Maui mango tea, which is one of my one of my favorites. If you can't, you know, you won't be able to see, but this bag is basically empty. I drink this pretty much every single day. And what does it have in it? You think I would know that, but I don't. <laughs> it's got a it's got a lot of dried fruit. It doesn't have I don't think it has any caffeine. If it has any, it's it's pretty minimal. And it's just loose tea, put it in a basket, you know, heat the water, the basket drops in, blah, blah, blah. It's one of those. And it tastes really good. It's kind of sweet, but because it's tea, it you know, it doesn't have sugar, it doesn't have anything added to it. It helps like kind of sate the sweet tooth a little bit without actually eating anything bad so that's great and it tastes and it, it tastes fantastic yeah it's nice to have a warm beverage <laughs> yeah cannot be overstated i'm gonna try this it said to shake it slightly before opening and i really feel like they're setting me up here <laughs> ah but it did not explode <laughs> <laughs> it's nice it's like a little fizzy like a little bit of a mm. fruit water would recommend so now that we are drinking our interesting drinks we're going to talk about the moons of Uranus and why you think we should send a spacecraft there. This work's been going back to the late 1970s when they first were able to start getting spectra of these satellites into the early 80s up to the Voyager 2 flyby. But after that initial pulse of telescope work related to Voyager 2, and then a little bit of work since then, it, it's mostly been pretty sporadic. It, there'll be a team that essentially drinks a cup of coffee, writes a paper, and then moves on. And as a consequence, uranium moons have just been relatively understudied compared to their peers in the other gas giant systems, even less so than Neptune, because Triton is really fascinating. So it's had ground-based, long-term observing campaigns going back to at least the early 2000s, if not the late 90s. And it's that has not been the case with the uranium moons until I started observing them in 2012 and have observed them every year since then. So you're looking at these moons every year. That implies that yeah. they're changing year to year, perhaps? Why, why is every year important? They are changing a little bit year to year, and I'll get to that. But beyond that, even if they weren't changing, because the data that we have is so sparse, there's large sub-observer longitude gaps. They have what's called the leading and trailing hemisphere. So the leading hemisphere always faces in the forward direction during the orbit of these moons, and the trailing hemisphere always faces in the backwards direction. But it's even more nuanced than that. It's not just leading trailing. There's different variations across the leading and the trailing sides, like minor variations. And so part of the reason to go back and observe them again and again is because we want to see them at different longitudes. They're kind of faint. They're on the fainter end. And so we have to sit on them for a long time to get the data. So... In any given year, we might only get one or two spectra of each moon if the weather cooperates, if not maybe only one of each or even less in some of the years. And so it just takes a long time to build up that data set to get that longitudinal coverage. So it sounds like what you're saying is is that 
you're talking about these kind of observing angles. So you have the Earth where most telescopes are nearby, even if they're in space. And then the kind of angle that we're seeing these objects is changing slightly. As Uranus goes around the sun, everything's moving. It's very complicated. Right. <laughs> and so it's it's cool, though, at the telescope, it's fun to watch the change. So 12 years ago, when I started observing them, it's possible that you get to the telescope, you see Uranus, you see some of the moons, but other moons are hidden behind it just because of the viewing geometry on that given night. And this is, this is what you see in the other giant planet systems where Io or something goes behind Jupiter. Now, the moons don't go behind Uranus anymore because of the sub-observer latitude that we see them at. And so you just see Uranus in the middle and then all the moons are just going around it. And so it's, it's, it's neat. You get to see them at all times. Yeah, I think most people don't realize that Uranus has, as you said, this big tilt. And so, yeah, you see the whole circle of them going around as opposed to, you know, like Saturn's rings are halfway hidden behind it because of the way it's facing. Right, exactly. So the same face of the moon always faces the planet. But the interesting consequence of that is, is that, as you just said, one side is always kind of going forward in its orbit and the other side is always trailing. So if there's any dust or ice in the way, it coats one side of the moon only, but not the backside. So the front and back sides look really different, which is, again, different than the Earth, which is constantly kind of spinning as it goes around the sun. And that's what we think is driving the leading trailing asymmetries, in part, is due to dust accumulation, primarily on the leading sides, although there's dust is going to hit the trailing sides as well, but we think mostly on the leading sides. And then on top of that are charged particle interactions with Uranus's magnetosphere, which we think, naively, are mostly with the trailing sides of these moons. And so we think charged particles are changing their chemistry on the trailing side, and then on the leading side, the dust impacts are bringing in material, changing the spectral properties slowly, but also as they impact, refresh the regolith and expose fresher water ice, for example, from the uh, interior, the near surface of the moons, and then change their regolith properties as a consequence. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, so we see, for example, we see CO2 ice on these satellites, and it's almost exclusively on their trailing sides. So we think it's a radiolytic product formed as charged particles come into their surfaces, interact with water ice mixed with carbon-rich material, break apart the water ice molecules. The OH radical then diffuses around, bounces around. Some of that escapes out of the regolith, and then some of it will react with the other constituents that are in the regolith, forming CO2. The magnetic field axis is 58 degrees from the rotational axis. And we think this would still lead to the magnetic field mostly interacting with their trailing sides. And the thinking there is because Uranus rotates faster than the orbits of the moons. The orbits are anywhere from a day and a half to, for Miranda, the inner moon, to 13 and a half days, roughly, for over on the outer moon. And Uranus orbits every 17.2 hours or so. And so as it rotates, its magnetic field lines sweep past the moons, hitting them in the back, so to speak. That's the very simplistic theory. We don't really know if it works, but this, the distribution of CO2 seems to support that hypothesis for what it's worth. It's so interesting to compare that to Earth. Earth has a North Pole, and our magnetic North Pole is pretty close to our geographic North Pole. And then we have one moon that goes around in that plane, and that's all kind of in a... The moon is in a flat line with our orbit around the sun. But as you were just saying on, on Uranus, none of that applies. <laughs> you have the rotation of the planet, and then you have the rotation of the magnetic field, which is in a totally different direction. 
and then you have the rotation of the of the moons which are aligned with the rotation of the planet but are not aligned with how uranus is going around the sun at all right and so there's all this complexity that is not present in any other planet in our solar system right the other wrinkle here is because voyager 2 flew by and that's it we have a snapshot in time of what the magnetic field looks like and it, people who study this point out quite rightly that these things tend to vary they're time variable phenomena and it's feasible that the magnetic field axis changes over time but we don't have any data to support that and so that 58 degree offset we saw we don't know if that was just if it changed the next day after voyager 2 left the system so we have we have no clue <laughs> so it yeah so there's additional difficulties there with understanding what's going on it sounds like a lot of the appeal of studying these moons is that we don't know very much about them but we do know some stuff which i'm going to ask you about I was going to ask you about Miranda, but feel free to go on whichever moon you're excited about. This works. Let's do Miranda. So Miranda's pretty weird. It's one of the stranger surfaces in the solar system. It's a fairly small moon. It's the innermost and smallest of the five, what I call the classical Uranian satellites, the five major moons of Uranus. It's about the same size as Enceladus, which is also a very fascinating small moon. And that's a moon of Saturn. Yes, which has hyperactive plume activity, jetting into space from a subsurface ocean and has a very young surface. Miranda also has, in parts, a very young surface. Now, other parts of Miranda are ancient. The whole surface hasn't been geologically modified, but parts of it definitely have. And most of that modification is concentrated in these dramatic, what are called coronae, which are polygonal geologic terrains that are made up of systems of ridges and faults and we don't understand how they are how they are created but tectonism is certainly in play and it's also possible that there's some aspect of cryovolcanism however you may define cryovolcanism it depends on who you ask that is also helping to make these coronate i think the most accepted hypothesis is that they form as ascending diapirs so warm big parcels of material migrating through Miranda's interior due to tidal heating, most likely, that heat up Miranda's interior. This material gets warmed, it ascends through the subsurface and then breaches the surface, forming coronae. At different times, the three coronae that we see uh, have different ages, we think. We're pretty sure they're different. As a consequence, we think it's gone through multiple periods of hypergeologic activity. Now, just to point out to people, the reason that we say the three that we see is because of the large obliquity of the Iranian system. At the time of the Voyager 2 flyby, we saw the southern hemispheres of these satellites, but their northern sides are in winter, so they're not facing the sun. We have no clue what the northern sides of these moons even look like. The three coronae that we see, one is close to the South Pole, and we imaged the whole thing. That's Inverness, so we know that one really well. There's two on the leading and trailing sides of Miranda, Arden and Elsinore. And I think Elsinore's trailing and Arden is leading, but don't, you know, don't hold me to that. But we don't see the whole extent of those two coronae because they pass into winter. And so we assume that the coronae continue on to the northern side over low latitudes. And then maybe there is another coronae at the North Pole mirroring the South Polar Inverness that we saw. We just don't know. So that's part of what's going on on Miranda. Then there's also this thing called the Global Rift System which kind of surrounds the coronae, and it's just a whole bunch of system of faults and fractures that cover a lot of Miranda's surface. 
including Verona Rupes as part of the Global Rift System, which is the, I think it's the largest scarp in the solar system. And a scarf, I'd say, is a cliff? Yes, it's a giant cliff face. It's kilometers in scale. It's massive. And again, this goes to the idea that Miranda has undergone multiple periods of hyperactivity. And then we think our very simplistic understanding is that that activity dies down for whatever combination of reasons and then gets kicked back up, probably because of orbital resonances with neighboring moons. And so it might go into resonance and that increases tidal heating and melts the interior enough to cause surface geology and then it goes out of resonance and then loses that input of energy the interior solidifies again and then that activity shuts off that's very simplistically what we think might be happening but the exciting part is we don't actually know (laughs) yeah we don't know we don't know yeah and it's composition that's more in my wheelhouse in terms of looking at it with telescopes, it is slightly different than the other large moons. One possibility is because Miranda is so small, its gravity is lower because its mass is lower. And so it's not able to efficiently hold on to CO2 molecules. They escape to space. And as a consequence, CO2 never builds up to a critical level that we can detect with ground-based telescopes. I don't find that explanation super satisfying, but it's the best that we have at the moment. And so in contrast on the other moons, which have higher gravities, more mass, you make CO2 through these radiolytic interactions. But once the CO2 molecules get formed, instead of escaping, some of them at least will just hop along the surface and are are gravitationally loosely bound to the moons. And then they will end up finding a cold trap, which is just where it's, it's a cooler temperature. And then those CO2 molecules will condense into ice. And so we think that's what's happening. And once you make those sorts of cold traps, once you start them, because CO2 is really reflective, it's very bright material, it reflects more than it absorbs. And so it has a colder temperature. So you make a cold trap, it becomes a positive feedback. Whereas more and more CO2 gets put into that cold trap, the more is able to get trapped. Whereas on Miranda, maybe those cold traps never really get started. Because again, instead of hopping along the surface and finding one, they just, you know, statistically speaking, they're more likely to just get lost to space. So that's the thinking there. Could you tell us a little bit about Ariel? Yeah, Ariel's Ariel's probably my favorite. Spectrally, Ariel is is just phenomenal. It's it's different than the other moons in that it, it has the most CO2 by far. It has a, it has a lot of CO2. And are you talking like CO2 in the atmosphere like the Earth has or more like dry ice like CO2 you might see on comets? Dry ice. Exactly. Yeah, solid state CO2 on its surface. I mean, the amount of CO2 blows my mind. The only other moon that I'm aware of that could have a comparable amount of CO2 is Triton. Triton probably has even more. Which is a moon of Neptune. A moon of Neptune. Triton, and Triton is, is absolutely fascinating. It has all sorts of volatiles on its surface. And Ariel and the other Uranian moons are a lot warmer than Triton's surface. We're very used to CO2 gas in the atmosphere, right? That's what plants plants love and to think of it not just as a gas but as a solid and a solid that's basically like rock where it's exactly. functioning like a rock is a very trippy concept right this is some this is a molecule we know as a gas and it's functioning as something as hard and as stable and as permanent as a rock exactly um, and i've been giving a lot of you know press here a lot of hype to the idea that it's made from charged particles but it could be a native component to these moons it's possible that the co2 we're seeing is being exposed by geologic activity. 
doesn't necessarily have to be radiolytic or maybe not just radiolytic. It could also be geologic in nature. So, that it, you know, there's a lot of mystery here in terms of, you know, where these different constituents come from. And one of the big issues is we don't have spatially resolved data because Voyager 2 had a really great instrument suite, especially for the time, you know, these instruments from, you know, designed in the 60s and early 70s before they got put on the telescope and then launched in the late 70s. But a near-infrared mapping spectrometer didn't make the cut. And what you're able to do with that is get spectroscopy along with imaging. And so you're able to say, okay, that geologic feature has this composition based on this spectrum. And this other geologic feature over here has this composition based on this other spectrum. And so you can start to build up this relationship between geology and composition. You've said this, but people ask about it all the time. So I'm going to ask you, even like the most powerful telescopes, Hubble, JWST, when they look at these moons, they don't see resolved pixels, you know, like pixel here corresponds to the surface, pixel next to it corresponds to another piece of surface. You just see, you know, a tiny point of light. That's the sum of all of the light that's reflected from it. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. They're not spatially resolved. They're disk integrated, as we as we call it, for telescopes to spatially resolve the Iranian moons, but it's going to require the extremely large telescopes, which are these planned facilities that are going to be in the 20 to 30 meter range once they're built, but they're still, you know, they're still a ways off from coming online. And, and even then, you know, when you're talking about that sort of spatial resolution, it might end up, you might end up getting in the, in the neighborhood of maybe 10 or 15 pixels across their diameters which is great, but you're looking at regional differences at that point. You still are not going to be able to look at intriguing geologic features that could be conduits to their, to their interiors and what are the compositions of the material that is surrounding those sorts of putative conduits. You can't see that. You need a spacecraft making close passes to get that sort of data. We're just not going to get there with telescopes anytime soon. Certainly not in my lifetime. Yeah, that combination of the spectra, which tells you about the composition and the the images is really, really powerful for geologists. But before we get to to that talk about possible spacecraft, in the interest of time, I'm going to be really rude to the other moons. Any highlights of the other moons of Uranus you wanted to go over before we talk about spacecraft? Yeah, Umbriel has always had a, a special place in my heart. It's the middle moon. It's a bit of a middle child. <laughs> You know, it's three out of five. It has the oldest surface by far and the darkest surface of the five moons. It has one of the oldest surfaces of any icy moon. It's it's comparable to Callisto in terms of how old its surface is. And so it has a lot of dark material, which has accumulated over time. However, it has four craters that were identified during the Voyager 2 flyby that have these bright floor deposits, one in particular called Wunda Crater which is located near the center of its trailing hemisphere at low latitudes. And it's this bright annulus of material on the floor of a complex crater. It's a complex crater. It's got the crater rim, then it's got the central peak in the middle. All of that's dark. And then there's this bright ring around the crater. And we don't know what that is. And to find that out, there is a recommended mission, which would be a Uranian orbiter. This was recommended by the Decadal Survey, which is this really amazing intensive effort of the planetary science community where everyone comes together and there's like a lot, a lot of meetings and there's a lot of writing um, and everyone tries to hash out what the next big thing should be. And this report came out last year and they said the next big thing should be a Uranian orbiter. So how do you feel about that? And what sort of instruments would you like to see on it? 
yeah, I mean, obviously I was, you know, it's fantastic. It's, it was really, it was really nice to see that the decadal survey prioritized UOP as the highest priority outer solar system mission. So they do make the point that Mars sample return and Artemis are higher priorities than this mission and they're coming first and, you know, they're next, they're next in the queue. And I, I point that out just, just so that listeners realize that NASA will not be running with UOP in the near future. This is going to be a project, a mission that they might pick up in earnest in a few years from now, once Mars sample return in particular has, is a little bit further down the road. That's a really good point to make. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's something that I have to remind myself of that I don't like. I'd love to this mission to hit the ground running right now, but that's not the case. It's probably going to be more like 2027 is kind of the guess right now of when NASA might get serious about UOP in terms of forming instrument teams and thinking about how they want to actually pursue this mission and get it, you know, get it to the launch pad. It's interesting the timeline on these things. It'll take oh several years to get there and then you have to design it, then you have to build it, it has to launch, it has to get there. So, like, if you're excited about this as I am, like, this is motivation for me to, like, do some exercise because <laughs> I'm going to be an right. old lady by the time this comes back. <laughs> people who are in grad school right now and really people who are undergraduates right now will not be the people doing the heavy lifting from a research perspective on this mission because they're going to be in their 50s. So they're going to be the managers and it's going to be the people that are working with them and for them who are maybe in elementary school right now who are going to be the people who really do the heavy lifting from a research perspective. You know, to put it in perspective for people who are listening to this podcast, we're talking about a mission that would arrive at Uranus no earlier than 2044. And I think that is extremely optimistic. And 2050 is a better estimate. So we're talking about 27-ish years from now. To just, you know, let that sink in. I feel like people's reactions to this really depend strongly on their age. I'm sure there's some older people who are like, no, I want to know what's going on. But there's also probably an elementary schooler who's like, yes, that's right. I will get ready for this. This is absolutely the next generation's mission. It's not even the Zoomers mission. It's the one after them. I see my job and a lot of other people see it this way too, is we're getting this mission ready for the next generation. There's going to be a lot of handoffs on this one, a lot of baton handoffs so but it, that makes it fun yeah it's it's exhilarating it's it's interesting it's complex and anything that's complex you know for scientists we like that kind of stuff so even just the management structure for this is going to be difficult and that's it's a challenge and we'll we'll enjoy it maybe we won't live to see the rewards of this but you're laying the groundwork and i think that's really nice yeah yeah i like it right and so the other so we went down a rabbit hole there but the other thing you asked about is the instrument. And so my highly premature thoughts on this is a non-engineer, right, who doesn't think about it from, from that side of it. I see four instruments which are absolutely critical for moon science and then a close group right below that. And so the four critical instruments, the most obvious is a camera covering visible wavelengths that we see, you know, that covers the same wavelengths that our eyeballs cover. So we get to see what the surfaces actually look like. Making close passes of these satellites, as I said, Miranda's the one that we got the closest to at 250 meters per pixel. I think ideally we would at least get down to 100 meters per pixel. Ideally closer than that, but you know, there's always constraints with how close can you get and the amount of passes you get of each moon and the, the trade-offs that you always have to make with a mission during its lifespan. 
Ideally, you'd get at least 100 meters per pixel for all five moons, at least one pass. To help put it in perspective, for Voyager 2, like I said, Miranda 250 meters per pixel at best. Ariel's a kilometer at pixel at best. And then Umbriel is five kilometers per pixel. Titania is three kilometers per pixel. And Oberon is six kilometers per pixel. It's just where the moons were in the orbits at the time of the Voyager 2 flyby. Just they weren't that close. Yeah. It's just how, this just how it felt. I mean, Voyager had a very complicated flight path. <laughs> yes. So it's amazing they got what they did. <laughs> it, it really is. That was a fantastic mission. So we, we need to make close passes with a camera just to characterize our surfaces, get the geology and all of that kind of stuff. Also, it'll just look really cool. <laughs> yes. Obviously, I prioritize a near-infrared mapping spectrometer because it's something that wasn't on Voyager 2. We don't have that spatially resolved information in terms of what their surfaces are made out of. And so you'd combine that with the visible camera data to get like nice geologic maps, photogeologic maps, and then you overlay the composition on top of that. So those, those two data sets are highly complementary. Beyond those, we need a magnetometer. So you use the magnetometer to measure the magnetosphere, to measure Uranus's magnetic field, but you can also use it to look for what's called induced fields coming from the interiors of icy satellites. And it's the detection of induced fields that was used to find the internal ocean at Europa, for example. Now, Voyager 2 did have a magnetometer, but it didn't get close enough to any of the moons to search for induced fields. So we need to get even closer than we got to Miranda with Voyager 2, even closer than that. So that's another key instrument. And I said four, and I'm blanking on the fourth one right now. Maybe those are the top line three. And then in a group right below that, a thermal imager, so a mid-infrared camera, just a camera that's attuned to longer wavelengths to look for hotspots. So we can see if there's any regions that are warmer than others, and this would this could give us some evidence for recent geologic activity. So you can imagine having a stack of data where you've got the visible image where you see maybe a putative cryovolcanic feature. Then you've got the spectroscopy on top of that tells you something interesting. And then the mid-infrared images on top of that to look for signatures of heat coming from the interior, looking for signatures of heat flux. Beyond that, a UV spectrometer, which is useful for characterizing radiolytic products on the moons and also for characterizing their proximal plasma environments and other things along with that, and also a dust analyzer. So an instrument that can actually sweep up material into the spacecraft proper, and then we can compositionally analyze that material using a mass spec. And we had this sort of setup on Cassini. And so when it flew through the plume material coming out of Enceladus, we're actually able to characterize at the molecular level, like what that plume material is made out of, because it swept it up and then it goes into the mass spec, the mass spectrometer. And so it'd be nice to have something similar. Yeah, especially if Miranda has plumes. <laughs> that would be pretty neat. Exactly. And even if it doesn't, again, then you're analyzing the dust and you can compare that to the surfaces and that would complete the story quite nicely. I have a question my students wanted to ask. You can pass on it if you don't want to answer it. So you've done a lot of very serious professional work on these moons. Can I ask how you feel about jokes regarding Uranus's name? I mean, on some level, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of them, right? But on the other side of it, I think we should do ourselves a service and lean into them because it's free advertising and it helps promote interest in these moons with the public in a way that you, you just, it opens itself up to all sorts of conversations. And maybe it starts with the silly jokes, but then maybe it can actually get into science from that. And so that's, so I think, I think NASA should lean into it, totally lean into it. That's really lovely. Very juvenile jokes in service of science education. That's right. 
That's right. Whatever it takes to get people interested. <laughs> I wasn't sure how you were going to react I'm not to that it. question. No, I wasn't I'm not above that. it. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Dr. Cartwright, for being on the show. And now that we've heard all about the Iranian moons, we get to hear a fun fact about Richard. I listen to a lot of history podcasts. The best, by far, is Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Yeah, I really like podcasts a lot. There's such a useful way to learn about the world while you're doing chores. <laughs> so when you're, you know, you're in the kitchen, you know, because I cook a lot, you know, just, you know, dinner, whatever. And, you know, it takes a while to get, you know, the prep. And if you're doing stuff in the oven and you're also doing stuff on the stove, it just takes a while, right? So you have a lot of downtime while you're waiting for, you know, the potatoes. And as I'm doing that, I'm listening to these different podcasts. And a lot of those are, are history-based. And it's, it's really interesting to learn about um, how we used to interact with each other in the past. Because there's a lot of similarities to what's going on now. And so even though technologically we're in a, a different world, humans are still humans. And a lot of the things that we see on display now in our own personal interactions or at the, you know, the big stage where we see countries talking to each other or not talking to each other, that's, it's pretty similar throughout history. I like to learn about what happened in the past because it helps, it helps me feel a little bit more sane with the present when I see how we dealt with things in the past. Didn't always go well, but we always found a way through. Well, thank you so much for sharing. I'm sure there's somebody cooking dinner listening to you talk about Uranus's moons, which is a nice bit of symmetry. I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Carrie. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Intro music is from The Return by Deltron3030. Huge thanks to Deltron3030 for letting me use it. The beeps you just heard are from the very first space probe, Sputnik. You can visit us at listentospacepod.com, and we're at listentospacepod on Twitter. The views expressed here do not reflect the views of my employer or the employer of my guest. Thanks for listening.